please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Here's what's ahead on this week's Investing Insights. Microsoft faces a hurdle to buy the owner of the Call of Duty franchise. I'll tell you why Morningstar analysts think that the deal will likely close. Plus, the clock is ticking down on taking required minimum distributions this year. Morningstar Inc.'s Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, asked tax and IRA expert Ed Slot for last-minute tips, and workers could soon see new investment options in their retirement plans. The Labor Department has eased rules involving ESG funds. Our team discusses what the rule change could mean for workplace retirement accounts. This is Investing Insights. Welcome to Investing Insights. I'm your host, Ivana Hampton. And let's get started with a look at the Morningstar headlines. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission is trying to block Microsoft's attempted buyout of Activision Blizzard. The FTC has filed a complaint. The agency says Microsoft could use its control over the video game publishers' franchises to harm competition. And it argues Microsoft could manipulate pricing reduce the quality of games or the player experience on rival consoles, or totally withhold titles from competitors. Morningstar believes the major sticking points in terms of franchises are Call of Duty and its Battle Royale spinoff Warzone. Microsoft and the FTC will now have to argue over whether the deal is anti-competitive before an administrative law judge. This will take some time, so we don't expect the deal to wrap up until the second half of 2023 if not 2024. We still believe the buyout is likely to be completed, as Microsoft will likely make the concessions required. We're maintaining our $320 estimate of what we think Microsoft stock is worth and our $92 estimate of Activision stock. Morningstar considers the shares undervalued. Campbell cooked up a strong start to the fiscal year, but the numbers don't tell the full story. The company was able to offset the rise in inflation with pricing and cost-cutting measures, but it was lapping bleak year-ago results, during which sales slumped. Morningstar acknowledges Campbell's prudent strategic focus. However, macro and competitive pressures are heating up. Consumers are already facing higher prices at the grocery store, and that could continue into next year, as Campbell expects costs to continue to inflate. Campbell is also facing competitive headwinds, and they're forcing management to step up promotional spending through the remainder of the year. Morningstar is sticking with the $53 estimate of what we think the stock is worth. We suggest investors wait for the shares to come down in price before buying. Chewy's push to become the one-stop online pet shop helped lead to a quality earnings report in its third quarter. Chewy beat Morningstar's expectations with more than $2.5 billion in sales, and that's due to a big boost in spending from active customers. Management expects to add to that sales number in the fourth quarter, pointing to lofty auto ship penetration. The company shows stable demand once a subscriber has joined, and we believe the market frequently overlooks this point. Chewy is also looking to new categories like pet insurance and healthcare to boost sales. The pet category is recession resistant, with consumables and pet healthcare growing nominally through 2007 to 2009. We expect to slightly raise our $43.50 estimate of what we think the stock is worth. We consider shares fairly valued. Employees could soon see new investment funds in their 401k plans. The Labor Department has eased regulations involving environmental, social, and governance, or ESG funds. 
the Biden administration is reversing Trump-era rules, and there is discussion about what the rule change could mean for the future of workplace retirement accounts. Two people from Morningstar Research Services are joining Investing Insights to talk about the regulations. They are Associate Director of Sustainability Research, Alyssa Stankiewicz, and Manager Research Analyst, Megan Patchelock. Before we dive into the rule change, Megan, can you explain what plan sponsors like employers are required to do when creating retirement plans? Um, that's a bit of a loaded question. Um, and there are a couple of regulations and rudimentary requirements that a plan sponsor and like employers um, are subject to make. Um, some of them include having a written policy that describes their their benefits as well as the day-to-day operations. Um, it could be having a record-keeping platform available or um, a trust that manages the assets of that plan. Um, if you're asking from a more investment-focused side, so the fiduciary element of selecting the funds that go into that plan, um, that includes selecting investment options that are in the best interest of the plan beneficiaries or participants, creating a diversified lineup for them to choose from, and keeping the expenses of that plan reasonable. Now, the Trump administration set rules that the Biden administration decided not to enforce. Alyssa, what was the Trump-era policy concerning ESG funds? One thing that was consistent about the Department of Labor's stance under the Trump administration was the importance of the fiduciary duty. And so, as Megan just mentioned, a fiduciary may not subordinate the interests of the participants or beneficiaries in those plans under the plan to any other objectives and may not sacrifice investment return uh, or take on additional investment risk to promote non-pecuniary benefits or goals. That has stayed consistent. What changed under the Trump administration was the interpretation of pecuniary and non-pecuniary factors. The Trump era rule said very clearly that non-pecuniary factors could not be considered by a fiduciary and strongly suggested that ESG issues were hardly ever pecuniary in nature. If the plan fiduciary were to consider non-pecuniary factors in the process of selecting investment options for the plan, there were a a few additional requirements that they had to fulfill. So they had to document very clearly why the pecuniary factors were not sufficient to select this investment how the selected investment compared to all of the other alternatives, and how the chosen non-pecuniary factor is consistent with the interests of participants and beneficiaries. Furthermore, the Department of Labor under Trump made it very clear that that fund would not be deemed a qualified default investment alternative or a QDIA. Now, Alyssa, what are the changes under the Biden era? So as I said, the interpretation and importance of fiduciary duty remains part of the guidance on the Department of from the Department of Labor. And the Department of Labor actually openly acknowledged that although that's been consistent, there have been differences in the tone and tenor of the guidance from the department over the past 40 years, which have contributed to a fair amount of confusion on the topic. So the Biden-era Department of Labor did a few important things. They removed those additional Trump era requirements that I just listed out. They added the provision that fiduciaries 
could designate ESG investments as a qualified default investment alternative. And that means that plan administrators can consider ESG and climate change factors when they're selecting managers for those funds. Um, one thing that the Biden era guidance did not include from the original proposal was the provision that would have required plan fiduciaries to require ESG factors. So they did tone that down a little bit. All right, Megan, Alyssa just mentioned qualified default investment alternatives or QDIAs. And employers, sometimes they use these for workers who make retirement contributions but don't make investment choices. Um, what do employers typically pick here? Target date funds. The majority of QDIA options are target date funds. And um, as a result of that, we've seen that target date industry really garner a lot of assets. It's now an over $3 trillion asset industry. Um, why does that make sense? Um, it makes sense for a number of reasons. The first, a target date fund is really supposed to be your total wealth and retirement savings plan. The other one is if an investor is already not trying to select the investment that they're making, the target date fund has a professional portfolio manager behind it that makes the asset allocation decisions for you. It selects the underlying funds, it rebalances, and it monitors the performance and makes sure that it's in line to help an investor save for retirement and reach that goal. Um, so target date funds continue to make sense as the QDIA. Now, Alyssa, how could ESG funds factor in here? So in some ways, ESG funds have been available to plan participants, um, such as there are actually two uh, that we track here at Morningstar, ESG-focused target date plans. So Megan just outlined all of the benefits of those. Um, that are available today. And that's the Natixis Sustainable Target Date Strategy, as well as the BlackRock Life Path ESG Strategy. Those were launched fairly recently, and they wouldn't, under the previous guidance, have been allowed to be the qualified default investment alternative, but plan sponsors could have offered them as an option. So plan participants could have gone in to their retirement plan menu and opted in to those target date plans if they so choose. Another way that ESG funds could have factored in is by offering individual ESG-focused funds as part of the plan menu. And so plan participants could have customized their retirement plan even further by opting into those funds. But it's been limited. Alyssa and Megan, you have different perspectives about the adoption of ESG funds and workplace plans. Alyssa, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? I think the impact of this rule change is potentially pretty significant. One reason for that is that we've seen demand for ESG-focused funds growing over the past few years globally and in the U.S., and even in a challenged market environment, we've seen that that demand has been pretty sticky. Another factor here is that retirement plans constitute the majority of investment assets for most Americans. So this opens a massive door for investors and employees across the country that are interested in ESG-focused investing, um, potentially to better integrate that interest with their retirement plans. 
but it does depend on plan sponsor decisions following this rule. And I'm not sure how many plan sponsors will start offering ESG plans as the QDIA. The fact that they're allowed to know now though is huge because when they weren't allowed as QDIAs, we heard that as a major barrier for asset managers that were either considering launching an ESG-focused version of their target date plan or that already ran an ESG-focused version, an ESG-focused target date plan and just didn't see a lot of demand. Megan, can you weigh in? I'm a bit more skeptical. Um, especially if you're thinking about sustainable options as a QDIA. As Alyssa mentioned, there are a few options already in the marketplace, and they have a bit of a track record, especially if you're thinking of BlackRock Life Path ESG Index and the TIC Sustainable Future. So they have been available for investors, and a bit of a hurdle could have been the, the changes coming out from the DOL and their, their regulations around it. Um, but I don't think that plan sponsors are going to be rushing to these options and making the changes right away. If anything, it'll be more of a slow trickle. Another reason and another hurdle for potentially not having ESG option as a QDIA are a lot of recent lawsuits around target date funds used as the QDIA. In most cases, it's either been around the fees or the performance more recently. Um, and I don't think plan sponsors are going to be as willing to adopt ESG as a potential new angle for lawsuits, even with this new regulation. I think they're going to be a bit more cautious as to what they're putting out and selecting for their lineup. All right. Well, thanks, Megan and Alyssa, for this discussion about ESG funds and workplace plans. Thank you. Thank you. Some retirees might be experiencing RMD sticker shock. This year's required minimum distributions need to come out soon, likely from retirement accounts with lower balances. Morningstar Inc.'s Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, asked tax and IRA expert, Ed Slot about how to reduce the tax bill. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Time is running out for people who are age 72 and above and need to take their required minimum distributions from their IRAs and other retirement accounts. Joining me to discuss what you need to know about RMDs is tax and retirement planning specialist, Ed Slott. Ed, great to see you. Thanks, Christine. So let's talk about required minimum distributions, specifically for people who are age 72 and above. What types of accounts are subject to RMDs? Basically, all retirement accounts. That's your 401ks, IRAs, 403bs. But there are exceptions for certain accounts, like a 401k. If you're still working, you can delay RMDs until you retire, not from an IRA. From an IRA, there's no real exception there. Once you hit 72, you have what's called a required beginning date. That's April 1st of the year following the year you turn age 72. That's when RMDs begin. Actually, the RMDs begin for the year you turn 72. Okay. So Roth IRAs, though, are indeed a carve out that if you have Roth IRA assets, and this is one of the reasons you're such a fan, you do not have to take those RMDs. That's right. Roth IRAs can grow at your own schedule. You never have to take that money out in retirement. And if you do, it's generally going to be tax-free. So yeah, you don't have to worry about RMDs for Roth IRAs. 
Okay. So there were these new RMD tables that were introduced for this year, for 2022. What are the key differences in those calculations versus the 2021 tables and the ones that were in effect before? Yeah, they were in effect for years and years, somewhere Mm -hmm. around 20 years. So they finally updated to reflect uh, current life expectancy, but it, it adds a little, it helps you a little, adds about a year or two more of life expectancy, which lowers your required amounts. which in essence would lower your tax bill slightly. Don't expect a giant savings. Okay. So people who are calculating their RMDs for 2022, many of them have seen their portfolio shrink a little bit, but they may be in for sticker shock when they calculate their 2022 RMD because it's calculated based on the 2021 balance. Can you talk us through that? That is probably the number one question we're hearing from people, even advisors, which I'm surprised at because you just said it correctly. People say, well, my my account is down. Why should I take such a larger RMD? Now it's a much larger percentage of my balance. Because as you said, that RMD for say 2022 now was locked in on December 31st last year based on what was then a very high market value back then. So that's locked in, even if now it turns out it's a greater percentage of your account balance since it went down. So you still have to take that amount. There's no breaks for account balances going down, but people ask that all the time. Okay. So you have to take that RMD before the end of this year. Your 2022 RMD has to come out before 1231, and you shouldn't wait until the last minute. One question that comes up a lot in the realm of RMDs is how to reduce them. Can you give us a couple of ideas for people who either are thinking preemptively and aren't yet subject to RMDs or maybe are subject to RMDs and want to try to find a way to reduce the tax bill associated with them? Well, there's a few ways to do it, but before I say that, RMD, the word RM is a minimum. That's the minimum. That's what the M stands for, required minimum distribution. I wouldn't focus on that so much. Maybe think that uh, the the M might be maximum. You know, uh, maybe maybe you want to take more. Uh, You have to look at the long-term big picture. Let's say, you know, the uh, Congress was toying with sometimes they eliminate RMDs when there's a crisis or there's some even proposals to raise the age 73, 74, 75. Let's say they raise it to 80. They didn't. I'm not saying that. But the more they raise it, the more you can put off RMDs, the shorter window all your money has to come out because uh, after the SECURE Act, you only have 10 years on the back end for most beneficiaries. So the more you put it off, the larger the overall tax bill will be for you and your beneficiaries. That said, you can reduce RMDs once they begin by doing something like qualified charitable distributions. If you're charitably inclined and you give to charity anyway, the QCD can satisfy your RMD amount if you do it in the right order, up to $100,000 a year per person, not per IRA account, per person. So that's one way. Another way to reduce or, or put off RMDs is if you happen to be still working, say, in a company plan. Now, that still working exceptions where you can delay only applies to the company plan, but maybe they allow rollovers in from your IRA 
to the plan. Now, you can't roll over a required minimum distribution. That has to be taken. But once you satisfy that, if the plan allows rollovers in, maybe you can put that off until you retire. But again, you're putting off a bigger tax problem. You have to look at the long-term big picture. And the item you mentioned I'm a big fan of, I call it pre-RMDs, because maybe you should look at voluntary RMD. Well, they're not... They're if I use the word voluntary, they're not required. But maybe in your 60s, not before 59 and a half, because then there could be a penalty. Start a long-term plan to start spreading out distributions, taking advantage of these low tax brackets over many years. Because once uh, RMDs start, for example, Roth conversions are constrained. You can't convert an RMD to a Roth, so they cost more at that. You can convert once you satisfy your RMD, but then you have to take more out. But look at a plan maybe in your 60s to start taking small amounts voluntarily, not required, to reduce IRA balances and get those out at lower rates. It's true, the funds will no longer be tax deferred, but if you can get them out at lower rates and put it into a Roth IRA before RMDs begin, by the time you hit age 72 and RMDs begin, you may have very little or maybe even no IRA left, and you'll save money on RMDs, save taxes for the rest of your life. Okay, last question for you, Ed, relates to the timing of taking these distributions. Obviously, the clock is ticking for 2022. People need to get the funds out of there. But if they're thinking forward and thinking about the best time of year to take their RMDs, do you have any advice there? Well, if they're doing these QCDs, don't do the RMDs first. Do the qualified charitable distribution first because it can offset the income from an RMD and satisfy it if it's for that enough of an amount. So that's one thing. If you're taking it towards the end of the year like people do because they don't want to take it before they have to, I wouldn't wait till the last two weeks of December or so because uh, I think I tell you this every year, but anybody who knows anything at these fund companies knows to take the last two weeks off. <laughs> because the uh, telephone calls are are insane. Everybody, not only RMDs, all kinds of year-end transactions. It's a zoo over there, and they can't keep up with it. I would say try and get everything done you know, two weeks before the year ends. Uh, remember, it's a 50, 50% penalty on the RMD if you didn't, on the amount of the RMD you didn't take. Okay, Ed, great advice as always. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. Thanks to Christine and Ed. Subscribe to Morningstar's YouTube channel to see new videos about market news, personal finance, and investment ideas. Thanks to podcast producer Jake Vankerson, and I'm thanking you for tuning in to Investing Insights. I'm your host, Ivana Hampton. I'm a senior multimedia editor here at Morningstar. Take care. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording, such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and our financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission.
Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision. 